exposition of the book of Hebrews that I hope to finish by summer. Um, Our text today is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I want to read them, I want to pray, and then get into this. I'm excited about this text and all it has to teach us. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, these words are really the the culmination of many months of study. I pray that You would take these words, sink them deep into our souls. Even as we sang, God, how do we need to press on? We need to keep in the way. We need to strive to rest. And here we could add, we need to run with endurance. It is the message of the book of Hebrews. God, that Jesus is better, so press on. And I pray that through my words today, You would give us reason and insight and desire God, to press on towards the great faith we have in a crucified Savior who is a risen Savior who has appeared to us and has ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. I pray that Jesus would be our, our hope and our light and our focus our desires, we seek to run this race with endurance. So help me as I preach, O oh Lord. Open the ears of those who hear. Convict where we need to be convicted. God, give strength where we need strength because we are weak. I know that. And we need all of Your, um, your work in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you this morning about a, a man named John Coulter. I'm not sure if you've heard of this man before. He was a, a very courageous man. He loved the outdoors. He loved the wilderness. He loved adventure. He was, if you will, a true mountain man. He was one of the few who traveled with Lewis and Clark on the expedition to the newly purchased Louisiana Purchase in 1806, 1804 to 1806. They were seeking to find water from the Pacific Ocean through to the east. It was Thomas Jefferson's um, command to them. They, they didn't quite find that, but, but he was out. And, and one of the things that made him helpful was he was strong in hunting, he was strong in, cra- in trapping, so he could really help provide for the, the people on the expedition. Well, as that expedition ended, John Colton didn't go back to the comforts of society. Instead, he turned right around again and continued to explore this great vast wilderness and he became the first white man to see Yellowstone and all the geysers and the geothermal activity there. He became the first white man to see the, the Teton mountain range. And after he'd explored that for a while, he came back, reported his findings, and, and out he went again. And he was a tough man exploring this wilderness. In fact, he was out even sometimes during the winter times in those regions where the temperature can be even 30 degrees below zero. Fahrenheit, Celsius, doesn't matter. It's cold at that time. It's about the same degree, same temperature. And he's loved being outdoors. And on one of these wilderness explorations, he uh, teamed up with a man named John Potts who had joined with him in the Louisiana Purchase Exploration. 
And uh, he and John had set some traps along a, a fork, a branch of the Missouri River called Jefferson's Fork. Is where it was checking for animals. As they're canoeing up this little stream to catch up to the bigger river, they start hearing rustling in the forest on both sides of them. And soon they saw hundreds of Blackfeet Indians with their bows pointed straight towards them. And John Coulter knew about these Indians, the Blackfeet Indians. He has been uh, in the West. He had learned even some of their language. As he had learned about them, he knew some of their customs. He knew these guys meant business. And so he paddled and drove the canoe up to the ground. He, he walked on shore, but his buddy, John Potts, was not so excited about this. Instead, he took his gun and shot an Indian dead. And he sought to make his escape down the, the river. But he was filled with arrows. He didn't make it very long. And so there was... John Coulter standing before these Indians, and now they're agitated Indians. They're angry Indians. And he was promptly stripped naked, shoes and all, standing just defenseless before them. They decided what to do. They thought about having him set up as a long-distance target practice, and then they decided to do what they often did, and John Coulter knew what they would do. And so when the Indian chief put his arm around John Coulter and said, Are you a swift runner? John Coulter said, uh, No, I'm pretty slow. Though actually he was pretty swift. He knew what was coming up. And if he said that he was pretty fast, he may not have been let go. But like a fox in a fox hunt, John Coulter was let go to run. And uh, he had this plain before him until the, the river, about six miles across this plain. And the Indians, the Blackfeet Indians, spears, arrows in hand, were detained on this side. He said, go run. And he starts running. He's about 300, 200, 300 yards out. And then the chief says... Okay, go. Like Indians pursuing their fox. And Coulter, he said at that moment, could hear the cry, the whoop, the war cry of all these Indians behind him. But, knowing his life depended upon it, he kept running. And he looked straight ahead and just kept running. He was about halfway across that plain, about three miles out, when he, uh, he looked behind him to see how the Indians were doing. And he had, he had gained some ground on most of the Indians. He was more than a couple hundred yards ahead of them by that time. Um, but there was one Indian who pursued him um, who was especially swift. And this man had a spear in hand and he was closer than a few hundred yards. In fact, he was only 150 yards away. And these Indians could run with their moccasins. But John Coulter didn't have any protection for his feet and his his uh, feet were covered with uh, prickly pear, which tore into his bare feet. He was in pain, but he knew he had to keep pressing on. Well, as he, he kept going, he was in a mile of the river again, he heard the footsteps of this Indian, maybe 30 yards behind him, maybe 20 yards behind him. And, and, and he had spear in hand. And, and Coulter felt like every step he was going to have this spear into his body. And so he kept running. So what he did was he, he figured he'd go for broke. He stopped. He turned around. He put his hands up and started going after the guy who, who was startled and tripped and fell and broke his spear. Coulter then picked up his spearhead, drove it into the man while he was on the ground, killed him, and then kept on running. And being fairly close, about a mile away to the, to the river... These other Indians, as they caught up, kind of stopped to survey the situation and let out long, loud cries of lament and anger. And they were even more terrified, more furious at this man, John Coulter. But as he went out, he kept running. And finally he got to the river, which, which was surrounded by cotton, cottonwood trees. And so they had a protection there. So he dashed into the trees and had some time to try to find his escape there in the, the river. 
And uh, what he did is he, he noticed along the river there was this small island in which some driftwood had come and kind of been jammed up against uh, against the island. And so he quickly jumped in the river and sought to dive underneath this cotton driftwood raft, if you will, and try to find a little air pocket underneath it. After several attempts, finally he found one. He was several feet under the ground because all the uh, underneath all this wood which was on top of him and he found an, an air hole. And there he was in the frigid waters as he heard, once he found his, his place, he heard the Indians kind of scattering around looking for him. Some of them, he said, even were, were right on top of him, several feet away, as he could see through the cracks looking up at him. But he stayed still. The Indians searched all day, couldn't find him, and finally in defeat they left back home. And then under the cover of darkness, John Coulter drifted down stream a little bit, got out, and you might think that, well, that's wonderful, he was rescued. No. At that point, he had about a seven-day journey to the nearest fort. Fort Lisa was its name. And his situation was still dreadful. He was there stark naked, unprotected from the, the burning sun of the day. He had no firearms to which to get game, to game, which he saw all around him. If he had a gun or a trap, he could have killed them and got them. Soles of his feet were completely filled with thorns of prickly pear. Most men would have died on the way, but this man was a, a tough man and John Coulter made it to safely, mostly surviving on a root, esteemed by the Indians, known as ground potato root. We walked into the fort. He was unrecognizable, but he was nourished to help. Nourished to health by those who saw him and then he could tell his story. He told it several times to people over the years. And his story was so great, he has uh, got a historical marker in Stewart's Draft, Virginia. Where he was born, it tells a story of how he ran for his life. And kids, and your children's note, there's even a picture there of the sign and plaque that's erected to his name. Well, the title of my message this morning is entitled, Run for Your Life. It's what John Coulter did. He ran for his life. And that's what I'm calling you all to do this morning. Because God calls every single one of us to run for our lives if you look here in Hebrews chapter 12, that is the one imperative found in the text. Right there at the end of verse 1, right? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Everything else in this text modifies that one command. We either need to look back to the examples of Hebrews 11 and how they ran, and so we also ought to run. We ought to look to ourselves for maybe things that hinder us, and so we ought to free ourselves up so we might run we are to look to Jesus, what He did and what He accomplished for us so that we might run towards Him. Well, over the past year and a half, we've been working through the book of Hebrews. We've posted this picture oftentimes behind me. And um, it's the theme of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better, so press on. And there's a man out there running in the, the twilight, the cold of the day. But you notice that he is not a sprinter. He is running a long-distance race. He looks like he is training for the 10K rather than for the 100-meter dash. In fact, that is what the Christian life is. It's, it's not a sprint. It's a, a long-distance run. And it's a running with endurance. It's another way even to say to press on. Pressing on another way is another way to say run with endurance. That man looks like he's running with endurance. And that's what this text calls us to do. It says run with endurance. Run a, a long race. Because the race of Christianity is long and it is hard. We ought not to stop. We ought to keep running. See, the sprinter doesn't need endurance. It's a long distance runner needs endurance. We ought to run 
for a long time. We not, ought not to be like the cheetah who sits around and stalks his prey and then out 70 miles an hour after its prey trying to get it, whether it gets it or not, afterwards, after a few short minutes of bursting, he's keeled over, exhausted from all the energy that he just expended. But instead, we ought to be like the dog sled huskies who run all day long, every day, and love to run. they got so much energy, they're just bounding up and they just want to run. In fact, I've even read some some things about the dog sleds. These dogs are happiest when they're running and pulling the sled because they're out there enjoying what they do best is running. We ought to be like the huskies, not like the cheetah. And the Bible is full and speaks of examples of those who sprint in their faith but later falter. Remember Jesus in the parable of the sower and the seeds when He sows the seed upon the, the different places, some upon the hard soil, some upon the thorny soil, and some upon the rocky soil, and some upon the good soil. The thorny soil doesn't even take root, but there are some upon the rocky soil and upon the thorny soil, which when the seed comes, they sprout up with joy. They're sprinting, and then what happens? Well, either they have no root, the sun comes out, or the, the thorns choke them up. And they die away. They falter away. Because they're sprinting. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a run with endurance. It's the good seed that endures. In fact, even Jesus said that it endures. It sprouts forth to bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And there you see the endurance aspect of things. It's the same idea. We need to run with endurance the race is set before us. This is an athletic metaphor. It is a metaphor of running And it fits well with a Christian life. Training, hard work, sweat, perseverance, courage, having a goal that you're seeking towards. The the New Testament has several commands. In the New Testament, talking about how we ought to, to train and run. Paul told Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Because he wants to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He says, an athlete does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules and the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share from the crops. Just describing the Christian life. It's a life of hardship. It's a life of toil. It's a life of pressing on. You must obtain the prize through hard work and diligence and discipline. And at the end of the second Paul affirms his own battle. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I have put on my boxing gloves. And I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. I have run my race, is what he is saying. I have kept the faith. And now he says, I'm waiting for that reward of the crown of righteousness. Just like the athlete who wins the prize awarded with the wreath, so also is he looking towards that award, is what he said. Uh, Darren read for us, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run to win? But only one receives the prize. And then Paul says, run in such a way that you might win. It's my call to you today. Is to run with endurance so that you might win the prize. You need to see here also that this idea of running with endurance, the race is before us, there's no game. I mean, I think about athletic competition. And so what happens? It's one team plays another team, right? The, the Bulls are playing the Hawks. I don't even know who they are. They're playing the Hawks next. And, and so the, they'll play their game and they'll go, but what happens at the end of the basketball game? Well, the one team wins or they win a series and they you know, get their prize. And the other team just goes home. No big deal. But let me tell you that the stakes are much higher than that in this text here. My text is entitled, Run for Your Life with a Reason. 
Because I believe if you don't run with endurance, you very well may lose your life. That's the call of this text. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, continuing that, listen to what he says, everyone who competes in a game exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Now, Paul might be talking about disqualification as a preacher, but he also might be talking about disqualification of the prize. Because he talks about, I want to gain an imperishable wreath, not just a perishable one. And what's he talking about? He's talking about internal salvation. That it lasts forever. And that's what he's longing for. That awaits all who run victory in Jesus. And that's the call of our text. is a run with perseverance to obtain this eternal prize. It's an imperishable prize. And just as John Coulter was running for his life away from those Indians, the call of our text this morning is equally as urgent. In fact, it's more urgent. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill, can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And the message on Coulter would be, you know what, don't scare those Indians. All those Indians can do is kill your body as they chase you with a spear. But don't fear them. Fear the Lord who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell if you don't run for your life. Unless you think I'm overstating this case, I'm going to show you what I mean. Turn back to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Really, we are the culmination of a, of a long argument that started back in chapter 10. Chapter 11 is only an illustration of this argument. Chapter 10, verse 36. It says, You have need of endurance. There it is, the same word. You want to run with endurance? You have need of endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Easy enough, right? You endure and you get the promise. And the implication is, is clear. If you don't endure, you won't receive what was promised. That's what it says. The clear implication of things. You say, Steve, how can that be? I thought you just need to believe in Jesus and you're okay. Well, that is true. But your believing needs to be the right kind of believing. I like to say it this way. Genuine faith is enduring faith. That's the faith you need. You see that in the logic of verse 37 and 38. Yet in a little while, He was coming, will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if He shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in Him. In other words, Christ is coming. The righteous will live by faith. If we shrink back, God has no pleasure in us. If our faith isn't an enduring faith, it won't be a faith that's pleasing to Him because genuine faith is an enduring faith. The faith that shrinks back is abhorrent to God. We need to endure. We need to endure to the preserving of our soul. And that's what verse 39 says. But we, with our faith, are not of those who shrink back. Because if you shrink back from your non-enduring faith, you shrink back to destruction. We, rather, are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The opposite of shrinking back is those who have this faith that doesn't last. But we press on. We have the preserving of the soul. We need to have faith that preserves the soul. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 is all an illustration of that. Is enduring faith. And all these people of Hebrews chapter 11 had enduring, enduring faith so that they write their souls might be preserved. Well, let's look at my first point this morning. 
That was my main point. Run for your life. Here's the first point. Run to your life by looking to the heroes. Verse 1 of chapter 12, our text this morning, starts with a therefore and then speaks about these witnesses we have. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because others have ran before us and because they've endured in in their faith, so too ought we to run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's really the conclusion of chapter 11. It's what the word therefore signals. It's a concluding word. So you might, you might say it this way. Because Abel endured in his faith, and because Enoch endured in his faith, and because Noah endured in his faith, and because Abraham endured in his faith, because Sarah endured in her faith, because Isaac endured in his faith, and because Jacob endured in his faith, because Joseph endured in his faith, and because Moses endured in his faith, because the parents of Moses endured in their faith, because Joshua endured in his faith, because Rahab endured in her faith, so also the call on our lives is to endure in our faith as well. And like them, we're to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now, there's a question of interpretation here uh, surrounding this cloud of witnesses. Uh, I've heard some speak about this athletic metaphor and, and use the illustration of the cloud of witnesses almost as if we are stepping then into a large coliseum with all these who've run before us and they are, they're surrounding us and cheering us on and so that we can press on in our faith. Like, like home field advantage, we've all the, the crowds just cheering loudly. And that may be the case. I know I've heard that on several occasions. It kind of makes a nice illustration. It, it preaches well. But I don't think that's really what the author here is saying. I think rather what he's saying is rather than being spectators who are cheering us on, these saints of old, I think rather they're examples to which we should look for our encouragement. Like, for instance, in verse 4 when it speaks about Abel, it says, through faith, Abel, though he is dead, he still speaks. It's not that he's speaking, cheering us on. Rather, it's his testimony that continues to endure, continues to speak as an example for us in our faith. And that's what I think this whole list of these past heroes does for us. They speak to us and that they give testimony to us. They are witnesses of what a life of faith is like. And they can be a great encouragement to us. So, for instance, here, here's a way that it might be encouraging to us. You might, you might say this, that, you know what, here I am, I'm trying to live my life of Christianity. i got all my families against me. And it seems like i got the whole world against me. How am I going to endure in that? Well, you say, what about Noah? Noah had the whole world against him except for Ham, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, their wives and his wife. Eight of them were the only ones who pressed on. The whole world died in the flood because the whole world was against them. We can be encouraged by that when Noah stands strong. Or you might think, well, God has not given me everything that I wanted. There, there are these things in life that God has promised that I, I hope that I wanted. And, and you might struggle with unfulfilled expectations in your life. Things that you wanted. Well, think about the faith of Abraham, right? He died in faith without receiving the promises. God had promised him the land and what did he have? He only had a burial plot for his wife. But what did he do? He looked forward and saw from a distance and welcomed from a distance those promises. But he himself knew I was an alien and a stranger in the land of promise. So we can look to Abraham when life's disappointments come because there were some disappointments there, but he continued on in faith. Or we can think about this, when tempted by the riches of the world, by the lure of the materialism around us, we can look at Moses. Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. 
because he was looking to the reward. He had the reproach of Christ, that is to, to follow Jesus and to have bad things spoken about him. Or he could have all the treasures of Egypt, right? Top dog in the land. Have everything before him. Servant. He, he chose Christ rather than riches because he had faith to believe that. And so we're tempted by materialism. We can look at Moses and just say he was one who denied the materialistic riches of the world. Or we're facing some major struggles and difficulties in our life that seem totally unconquerable. We can think about Israel standing there right there by the Red Sea and the Red Sea's on one side closing them in and Pharaoh's army's coming in on the other. And what did God do? Mighty rescue. Sent the pillar of cloud and fire right between them so that they wouldn't pursue. Moses raised up his arms and then they walked through in an unbelievable way. Walked through. God makes a way for them that they knew nothing about beforehand. Walked through the Red Sea and they did that because they endured in faith. And they endured... We can endure. But it's not only those of the Old Testament we can look to. We can look to anyone and all who live by faith, whether they're personal examples or historical examples. You look over in chapter 13, verse 7. The writer says this, Remember those who led you. Right? These are probably your pastors that you've had. He's writing to lots of different people, lots of different circumstances. Maybe he doesn't have names. But remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Right? You're supposed to look at them, see their conduct, see what happened to them. And some of these may have been killed, but they continue their faithfulness. He says, imitate their faith. So you see people who walk great lives of faith, maybe personal people that you know. Imitate them. Also in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, we see the same thing. And we desire, the writer writes, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize your full assurance of hope until the end. Then press on until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but you will be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? Imitate those who had faith and patience ultimately obtained the promises. And so we look back maybe to people we know, Old Testament saints, people we know, also New Testament saints, they abound. I mean, if, if the writer to Hebrews wanted to, he could have talked about the New Testament saints. But his argument, the reason why he stayed in the Old Testament, because his argument was these Jewish people coming into the church needed to see that their faith is, is a continuation of the faith of the Hebrews. But we can look back and we say, hey, people who believed in Jesus, what about the faith of uh, Peter and Andrew who by faith left their, their nets and followed Jesus? Or by faith, we can look at the Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus for her daughter, even claiming and wanting just crumbs from the table. Or we can look at the faith of the centurion who came and begged Jesus for the health of his servant, just even saying, just say the word, Jesus, and she'll be healed. Great faith. And we can look at the faith of the blind men who were along the road to, to Jericho. And when they heard that Jesus was coming, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us! Have mercy on us! They cried that out by faith because they knew that Jesus would have mercy on them. By faith, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. By faith, Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and boldly proclaimed Jesus the Messiah that the people standing right there just killed by faith, Paul preached Jesus to the Gentiles and suffered much for his name. By faith, Anisiphorus is not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus or the testimony of Paul. By faith, Epaphroditus risked his life for those who were in Philippi. By faith, Timothy served with Paul in the furtherance of the gospel. By faith, John was exiled to the land of Patmos. And you can, you can just look at Old Testament, New Testament examples of faith and be encouraged by them. But we can also look, look to the time of history. We can look to historical heroes. By faith, John Bunyan chose to endure the, the sufferings of imprisonment rather than to be free and not able to preach in Bedford. 
By faith, Adoniram Judson left everything of colonial America and sought to reach those in Burma. By faith, David Brainerd endured both health and difficulty to reach the Indians of America. By faith, Charles Spurgeon endured great hardship and difficulty and health difficulties to proclaim the simple gospel of Jesus. By faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer opposed the Nazis and stood firm against Adolf Hitler and lost his life as a result of it. By faith, George Mueller provided for many, many orphans by praying to God alone. By faith, Hudson Taylor sought to reach the people in inland China. By faith, John Patton gave up everything and went to the New Hebrides to reach the people there. It's just a small example. I've got this book on my shelf of 50 people every Christian should know. I think, yeah, maybe you told me about this book. I'm not sure. I have one. And Vaughn, you just picked up another copy. Some of these people we know. Some of these people you don't know. I don't know. Catherine Von Bora. Who knows who Catherine Von Bora is? Martin Luther's wife. That's right, Katie. Samuel Rutherford. Huh? I'm not exactly sure. Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Simeon, Christmas Evans, John Henry Newman. Richard Trench, Andrew Bonar, Robert Murray McShane, F.W. Robertson, J.C. Ryle, Fanny Crosby, Alexander McLaren, J.B. Lightfoot, R.W. Dale, Joseph Parker, J. Hudson Taylor, C.H. Spurgeon, Phillips Brooks, Francis Ridley, Havergale, Alexander White, Dwight Moody, George Matheson, C.I. Schofield, F.B. Meyer, Roberts, W. Robertson, Nicole, Henry Drummond, R.A. Torrey, Thomas Spurgeon, Samuel Chadwick, Charles Jefferson, Griffith Thomas, A.C. Gableine, G. Campbell Morgan, John Henry Jowett, J.D. Jones, George H. Morrison, Amy Carmichael, Frank Borum, Joseph Kemp, Oswald Chambers, H.A. Ironside, Clarence Edward McCartney, William Whiting Borden, Alva J. McLean, A.W. Tozer, W.E. Sangster, William Culbertson. Uh, there's a lot of people even here that I don't know that, that could become my heroes if I just take some time and read through this book. They can become your heroes to take your time and read through books like that. Now, what's interesting about this list of people compiled by Warren Wiersbe is we don't agree in all our theology with all these people. There are things about their lives that were not so clean and not so nice, if you will. A little bit like Hebrews chapter 11 was. But all of them had faith to the preserving of their soul. And in that we can rejoice. In that we can learn. And imitate them not in their flaws, not in the error of their ways, but imitate them in their faith. And it can be a great encouragement for us to press on. When they do it, did it, we also can do it. And so I commend you a Christian biography. The examples given in chapter 11 is Christian biography. And we can learn from the historical ways of how God has worked in people. And they, they endured. And we can too. And I'm just telling you, church body, run for your life. Run for your life. Do what it takes. Well, run for your life by looking to your heroes and run for your life secondly by looking to yourself. Get this in the middle of verse 12. He says, let us also, and uh, this looks like a command in the New American Standard. Really, it's another participle. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, also laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, here comes the command, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The idea here is that you're looking to yourself Right? And, and the picture here is pretty easy, right? Picture a marathon or some kind of long distance race. And what happens is, uh, you know, guys like that, kind of, he's got his sweatshirt on, he's got his hoodies on, 
He's got his sweatpants on because it's a little cool out there. But you're, you're warming up for the race, you know, and you're bouncing up and down and you're, you're stretching your legs and pulling them like this, like racers do. And you're, you're limbering up your joints. You're getting your back. You're getting your neck. You're doing a, doing a little jogging, getting around. And then what happens? The race is about to begin. What do you do? You take off your hoodie and you take off your pants and your, your shoes that you got on are the lightest can be. And you ever seen people run the marathon, high-class marathons? You ever see what kind of shorts they wear? Are they wearing those new stylish long shorts over the knees? No, they're, they're wearing these silky things that are just really small and tiny, light as can be. What kind of clothes are they wearing up top? Just light little vests. Probably their, their entry placard number is probably heavier than their clothes they got on. They want to be as light as possible so when they run, they aren't hindered at all. I've never seen a marathon runner running in Boston dressed like that. This doesn't happen because you're going to run, you're going to, you're going to get these things off, you're going, to, you're going to rid yourself of every encumbrance, you're going, to, you're going to rid yourself of anything that entangles you. Notice there are two things here. We're supposed to rid ourselves of the encumbrances and the sin. I want to take these in opposite order because I think it helps us then to understand what's going on. First of all, let us get rid of the sin that so easily entangles us. Notice there is a definite article there. It is the sin that easily entangles us. It's probably pointing to a singular sin in the context of Hebrews. It's certainly talking about unbelief. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 and 3 speak of the warning of the people of Israel didn't enter the land. Why? Because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 2. Indeed, we have had the good news preached to us just as they had also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It didn't profit them because they didn't believe. For we who have believed entered that rest, whereas they didn't enter because they didn't believe. And so here is the sin. I think it's predominantly a sin of unbelief. And again, when you hear the situation, the original situation, these Jews that had come into the church, and the idea is you need to really believe in Jesus. You need to believe that He's the Messiah. You need to believe He's sent from God. And that His presence is anything better than the Old Testament has to offer. His revelation is better. His priesthood is better. His sacrifice is better. His covenant is better. Everything about Jesus is better. Don't go back to those old ways. Believe in Jesus. So if you don't believe in Jesus, that's a sin that's going to tie you up and tangle you. In fact, look at what the sin does. It says it, it will easily entangle us. That is, it kind of wrap around. A good picture of this is like shackles of a prisoner. Uh, a prisoner, I'm not sure you've ever seen them in a courtroom, are, are bind with their hands and also their feet are bound, their shackles on their ankles with a little chain between them so they can kind of shuffle like this. But try to run when you got to really get your leg out and they can't do that, they're going to fall on their face. It's a good idea, a good, good picture of sin. So you can't run if you have the sin of unbelief. If you have the sin of unbelief, it's like you're bound. You need what Charles Wesley said, when I was bound in my sin, thine eye diffused a quickening way, and I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The, the God came and broke His bounds. I mean, that's how He sees Himself. Imprisoned in jail in unbelief. And then God comes, breaks His bound, bonds, and then He goes free. He can run. Once that chain is cut, He is free. But even you go a little bit further on that illustration. It's not just these, these chains where you can kind of walk. It says it's these chains that can easily entangle us. So picture the, these chains with ivy growing on them that kind of wraps around your legs and wraps around your arms. Such is the life of the one who doesn't have faith trying to run the Christian life. You'll fall over like if you have a straitjacket on and you can't get up. 
like a beetle on its back. You'll just flail what you can do, but you won't be able to get up. And so likewise, with the sin of unbelief really entangles us. But I, I do believe that we ought to lay aside every sin and, and that, that reasoning for that comes when we see our, our next item here. We ought to lay aside every encumbrance. Strictly speaking, these encumbrances aren't talking about sin. It's not talking about sinful things that God says not to do or things we ought to do. No, in this instance, He's talking about things which aren't sin, but things that slow us down. You say, what are they? Television is a good thing that slows us down. Now, there's nothing wrong with television. Um, It's neither good nor bad. It can be an agent of great good. It can be an agent of great bad. But the hours it consumes can encumber us in the race. And it might well be good to say, you know what, this television is encumbering me. I'm just going to dump it. That's what he's talking about. There's nothing necessarily godly or ungodly about having a television, but it can encumber you because it's sucking so many hours out of your time, you don't have time then for the ways of God. So anything that sucks time, maybe even children's activities, we're good, we spend all our time just running around or driving our kids around, that can be something that sucks us. And that's maybe an encumbrance you need to get rid of. Maybe it's the internet. I think the internet is quickly replacing the television in terms of a a time-sucking thing. Facebook and Farmville. Our favorite blogs. Even our favorite blogs can be good. They, they might even teach us the ways of God, but it might suck us away from other things that we should be doing. And with video, I mean, Angry Birds and video games can just suck, suck from us. There's nothing necessarily wrong with any of those things. But things that are addictive and captivating and they keep us our time, they can be bad. And anything. Here's a list of other things. I just put down some. It can be our cars. It can be our karate classes. It can be our gardening. It can be our golfing. It can be our iPods or iPhones or ice cream. It can be knitting or news channels. It can be movies or magazines or music. It can be pool tables or our parties. It can be sports. It can be our cell phones. It can be texting. It can be talking It can be woodworking. It can be water skiing. It can be anything. You know, and and even we just need to be careful. I'm not saying that those things are wrong. None of them are wrong. But there are some non-essential things in our life that often can bind us and weigh us down. I mean, it wouldn't be wrong for a runner to have a stocking cap on. But why is he not going to do that? He's not going to do that because it weighs him down. He's going to take it off. And there might be things in your life that are that are non-essential. I mean, I list a lot of these things as non-essential. Now, you might say, Steve, a phone is essential. Yes, it is, but talking on your phone for an hour and a half is not essential. All right? And there might be some things that you use and it gets bigger and bigger in your, your life that might encumber you. And there are some, some diversions that we must have in our life. And God commands us. I mean, the principle of Scripture is six days of work and a day of rest. That's how we function. You will, you will get more work accomplished if you rest a day than if you work all six, seven days. Likewise, in a day, you need to take a break. Take a break for lunch. Right? And when you're working, right, take a little break here and there. And, and some of these non-essential things are okay for break. There needs to be a diversion. There needs to be kids. There needs to be a cultivation for the skill. There needs need to be these things, but you need to understand sometimes they, need to, they always need to play towards us. They need to help us in terms of diverting our mind, getting a break so we can come back stronger. But sometimes these things can so pull us away. And for all of us, it's different. 
I'm not up here saying at all that one thing is wrong and one thing is right. It may be just one thing I said has convicted you. Maybe some nothing I said convicted you. Maybe it's something else that said, wow, there's an encumbrance. And maybe two things or ten things I mentioned are an encumbrance to you. It may well be the Holy Spirit's bringing other things to mind. And Holy Spirit, I just even pray now, you'd, you'd convict our hearts. We are to get rid of every encumbrance. That doesn't say, well, I can just have this little encumbrance over here. No, you get rid of every little encumbrance. And I say this, kind of getting back to the sin of unbelief and every encumbrance. Certainly, if there's other sins, we ought to lay aside every sin as well. Because all sin encumbers us in our walk with the Lord and entangles us. And and I said, God, may You give us grace to see the hindrances, to see the sin, and to turn from those things to run our race. Well, let's look at my third point. See, we need to run for our lives. Run for your life by looking to the heroes of the faith, by looking to yourself, and now, verse 2, by looking to Jesus. Verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, these verses are so simple and they're so helpful. Look to Jesus. How easy is that? I mean, this, this is the message that saved Charles Haddon Spurgeon when he came into that Methodist house he was sitting back over there to the, to the right of where the, the preacher was preaching. We've been there in England, our visit to England about ten years ago. And uh, the preacher was too snowy for him to get anywhere. And so he just kind of dipped into this church. I think it was a Sunday night maybe and there was just a, kind of a lay guy. preacher couldn't make it because of the weather so he stood up and all he had was look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And he said, look, how easy it is. Four letters, L-O-O-K and all you need to do is look. That doesn't mean you need to run. It doesn't mean you, it just means you look. You just lift up your eyes and look. And kind of that's the whole. Spurgeon said that's all his sermon was, but it was enough to save Charles Spurgeon. Looking to Jesus, and the same way that we begin our faith by looking to Jesus, we are to continue our faith by looking to Jesus. We're to consider who He is. We're to consider what He has done. We are to rest in Him. We're to trust in Him and realize that He will be our help in our race. It's said of runners that they ought not to spend their time and energy looking aside to everybody. I mean, not only does it throw off their balance, but it slows them down. Instead, what they should do, they should look ahead. Okay, there's the finish line. I'm running from here to there. I'm just going to keep my head ahead and that's where I'm going to look. And so likewise here when it says fix our eyes upon Jesus, it means that we need to fix our attention with riveted attention upon Jesus. He should be the supreme object of our affection and our study. And that's the whole point of this. Jesus is better. We need to see how much better Jesus is than anything of the world. It's been well said that we should glance at the saints, Hebrews 11, Christian biography, everything, but gaze at Jesus. Such is the importance of this point over my first point. And I say looking to Jesus would be far more helpful than looking to the saints. That's the argument really of the book of, of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better. He's better, He's more attractive, He's more helpful, He's more compassionate than anything this world has to offer. He's better than angels because He made the angels and because they worship Him. He's better than Moses because He built the house upon which Moses is merely a servant. 
He's better than Joshua because he gives permanent rest. He's better than the former high priest because they are weak and he is strong. He fully understands and is full of grace and mercy and he's able and willing and ready to give help in time of need. His covenant is better because God gives grace to our hearts. It's not just mere external letter of the law. His sacrifice is better because it actually removed sin from us. It didn't just cover sin. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews chapter 10. But Jesus actually took our sin away. He's better in in every way. And so we should look at Jesus. Maybe you know the chorus. If you do, let's sing along with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's what we're taught. We're going to look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim. We're not as attracted by the wealth over here. We're not as discouraged by the unfilled promises. We're not swayed by these people who are speaking against us because we see Him and we are looking full in His wonderful face. We are fixing our attention completely upon Him and He's letting everything just go by the way and we're seeing Christ as all-sufficient and all-satisfying and that will help us run the race. Jesus... It's described here in verse 2. He has credentials. He has deeds he accomplished. He has everything. It, it, look what it says here. How much it better it makes him than all the examples of, first, of Hebrews 11. He says he is the author of faith. He's the founder of faith. He's the originator of our faith. So it says in Hebrews 2.10 that he is the author of our salvation. He's the one that designed it. He's the one that accomplished it. He's the source of our salvation, Hebrews 2.9. He's the one that executed our salvation for us. He is, as Hebrews 6.20 says, the forerunner of our faith. has entered the heavenly sanctuary for us, preparing the way. Jesus is the author of our faith. He's also the, the perfecter of our faith. That means Jesus is working on our faith. He is called the perfect one in Hebrews 5.9 and Hebrews 7.28. He's the one who strengthens our faith. He's the one who helps us in our weaknesses, right? When we are weak in faith, we cry out to God for help. Oh, oh Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He helps our unbelief and helps us there. He gives us the mercy that we need. He gives us the grace that we need. He helps us in our temptations. He prays for us through our struggles. Hebrews 7.25 In fact, that's His full-time job. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's always living to pray for us, to help us, to perfect us in our own faith. And He is able to save forevermore those who draw near to God through Him. Hebrews 7.25 His credentials are so much better than any of the saints. He's the author of faith. He's the perfecter of faith. But, but it's interesting. is he, he joins with all the saints as well, though, because He endured through faith as well. Verse 1 calls us to run with endurance the race is set before us. And verse 2 tells us that Jesus ran with endurance the race that was set before Him. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, He's the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before Him, we'll get to that, He endured the cross. Same word, hupomeno, to, to remain under in the midst of intense pressure and persecution, difficulty and trial. He continued on. He pressed on. 
like the runner whose legs are aching and his chest is pounding, he continued to endure and continued to press on. He endured the cross. And the cross is something to endure, that's for sure. And he willingly gave himself up to death on the cross. He experienced the great pain and agony of death on the cross. I've explained to you before the process of death on a cross. It's like drowning slowly. You, you, you die from asphyxiation. You die from lack of oxygen. You're, you're there and you can't, you know, you can't, you can't breathe and you're there and, and you got nails in your hands and nails in your feet that just hurt. And, and when it gets kind of, every time you breathe, you need to, and you need to pull and, and it hurts. And eventually, it just, your muscles are fatigued and you can't lift up anymore and you start drowning. You can't get any air in your lungs. And then just when you think it's done, your body <gasps> spazzes and then you, you fill your air with more. And so the agony just endures longer and you die by drowning slowly. Every time you think you're going to go, you're sustained a little bit longer as your muscles just spasm and cramp and... Just get some air in your lungs. But note here, though, it's very interesting. It's not the pain of the cross that Jesus endured that was so hard. It was the shame of the cross that Jesus endured. And that was more painful than any agony of the cross. I mean, many people died by the cross. But the shame of His cross was far more painful than dying slowly. When Jesus was on the cross, naked and exposed for all the world to see, that was shameful enough, but mocked and despised by the very ones He came to save, that was bad enough. Deserted by His disciples, it's painful enough, but most important of all, He was cursed of God, abandoned from His heavenly Father because the shame of the cross. According to the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And He was hanging on a tree and God considered Him cursed. And Jesus Christ became that curse for us. He died in our place so we might live. And that's the glories of the Gospel. And now why? Jesus gladly took that upon Himself. as He even told us right here. It's for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross. He endured the cross with joy, but He didn't endure... He wasn't joyful in it. But He looked beyond the cross to see the joy that would come. And that's what allowed Him to endure in that. He knew the promise of Isaiah 53, verse 11. It speaks about the suffering Savior. As a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, My servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. In other words, He's going to bear their iniquities, but later, after He's resurrected, He's going to see it and be satisfied in His soul because He bore their iniquities and brought many sons to glory. And so that's what Jesus did. For the joy set before Him, the joy of what? The joy of bringing sinners to Him in heaven, bringing much joy to Himself, bringing much joy to His heavenly Father. For that joy, He endured the cross, despising the shame. One of our fighter verses we've been memorizing in our prayer meeting, James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We can consider it all joy when we're in our trials because we know that our trials will produce endurance and steadfastness and ultimately perfection in our lives. And likewise with Jesus, He knew the trial of the cross would bring. It bring joy in heaven. It would bring many sons to glory through that. And so let's look to Jesus, the exalted one. That's who He is. Look what it says. The end of verse 2. He sat down 
at the right hand of God. This is speaking about His exaltation after His resurrection. The writer of Hebrews has spoken about this on several occasions. Chapter 1, he spoke about it, about Jesus being the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, upholds all things by the word of His power. It's when, after He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That's what Jesus has done. He is the high and exalted One. The fact that He sits next to the Father shows that He's been the accepted One. He is the One who is ruling and reigning in the world. The cross sitting right hand of God is, is the victory. It is a place of strength. A place of victory. And so... He's trustworthy. I mean, he's got all power in the universe. He rules the universe. He's just waiting for his enemies to make a footstool for his feet. But he's there. So I just say, church, let us run for our lives. Look to the heroes of the faith. Look to ourselves and get rid of any encumbrance we have. But especially look to Jesus. Because he will solve your problems. He will help you. He will help you endure until that day. And you say, hey, Steve, I'm weak. Well, look to Jesus. He'll strengthen you until that day. Let me just pray now for God to strengthen us. Lord, I would pray that You would strengthen us to run for our lives. Teach us, O Lord, of the, the battle before us which is even more severe than John Coulter. We have the demons of hell coming after us. We have the lure of the flesh We have the boastful pride of life coming after us and we need to press on towards the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to know that our righteousness is not our own, but it is found in Jesus Christ. The righteousness which comes through faith in Him. And that's what frees us up to continue on because we have no burdens. We can cast our burdens upon You and I pray that You would help us by Your grace to run with perseverance. May we not fall away as was the danger of many to whom these words were written. But may we press on to the preserving of our soul and Jesus in every way. May You be our vision. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.